man, my heart is so full today. But it hasn't always been. Not on Easter, especially not on Easter and Christmas Eve. And all the high holy times in the Christian calendar. When everybody comes together and, you know, kind of puts on their best Christian face and puts their best foot forward. Man, back when I was deep and dark in my skepticism, uh, these were my least favorite services to be at. Because I always felt like the people gathered and Christians just in general failed to understand how uh, outlandish some of their claims can seem, especially on Easter. Y'all, I don't think we understand that we're here celebrating something that most people in the world, by a wide majority, don't believe ever happened, including in the United States, where more Christians live than any other country. Uh, you know, up to 40% of, uh, of adults really struggle with the idea of a bodily, physical resurrection and don't really believe or, or, or think it's highly suspect. Um, that number obviously escalates even higher when you're talking about millennial adults. Um, people that are younger adults, uh, you know, have been steeped in a more secular culture that up to 60% or more of millennial adults say, you know, Jesus was a guy, he was a really nice guy, but he wasn't like God, right? He didn't really like come back from the grave in a physical sense. And then maybe most surprisingly was this recent study I came across that said one in four professing Christians don't believe in the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus, which uh, should get our attention. And I, I'm actually not surprised by that because I've been in too many Sunday school classes where, you know, lifelong Christians are like, about the resurrection, you know, like, meh, you know, maybe, maybe, or maybe it's just a symbol. Maybe it's just a metaphor, you know. And I know a lot of people that are like that. So I just want to say, I just want to say, if that's where your head's at today, uh, I'm glad, I'm glad everyone's here, but if that's where your head's at today, I'm especially glad that you're here because I don't know why you came if you don't really believe in this thing we're celebrating, uh, but I'm glad you came, whether it's because of tradition or whether it's because your girlfriend will, you know, love you more if you come with her to church on Easter or if it's because, you know, this is basically the pregame show, the brunch afterwards, and that's why you're really in this whole thing. Whatever it took, I'm glad you're here. I think there is a current of, uh, uh, of a worldview that is more popular than maybe we care to admit, and it's popular even in the church. People who kind of believe in the resurrection. People who believe in it, sort of. But more in a half-hearted kind of a way, more in a condescending kind of a way, you believe in it, but only in so far as what it does for people who believe in it. You believe in people believing in it, right? You don't, if I pressed you on it, you wouldn't really believe. You wouldn't say, I believe that a man was crucified and he died and that he physically rose from the dead. I don't believe that. Only crazy people would believe that. But I'm so happy you believe that. You know, that, that's kind of how we come at it. We often come at something like the resurrection, like parents of young children come at you know, blankies and, and nightlights. Like, blankies and nightlights never really had a real effect. They never really made any kids any safer ever, but they made a lot of kids feel safer. And it made them stay in bed, you know. 
for longer and sleep the whole night long, which is a very big deal when you're a parent of a small child. Like that is the line between, you know, sanity and insanity for you is a kid that stays in bed. And so praise whoever for night lights and blankies. And that's how we often feel about the resurrection. Like if that's what gets someone through the night, then go for it. Have at it. It's worth believing in if it makes you a better person and it makes it possible for you to cope with life. And I'll be honest, I used to be of that mind, but now I'm kind of, it, it aggravates me because I feel like it's this condescending pat on the head by, you know, more intellectual types that, that think they're smarter than Christians that just go, you believe that, sweetheart, whatever it takes to get you through the night. <laughs> kind of drives me crazy a little bit now, but I do think a lot of us, a lot of people, maybe even people in this room, probably even people in this room, kind of look at it that way. Historically speaking, maybe, maybe not, probably not, not, not probably didn't happen. But if it gets you through the night, then go ahead and believe it. And that, that is how many of us uh, come at resurrection because, you know, in our experience, guys that die don't come back three days later. If that's where your head's at, then I just want to acknowledge you and affirm you and say you're exactly right. That is not our experience. Guys, people don't typically die horrible deaths and then come back a few days later. What I want you to understand is that the same was true in Jesus' day. And it wasn't like they were a bunch of hippies or like witch doctors or like spiritualists that were like, yeah, he's coming back. Of course he's coming back. He's Jesus. Nobody believed he was coming back. Nobody saw the resurrection coming. It was less likely then than it is now that someone would approach death's door or even cross that threshold and come back. Now people do it all the time because the miracles of modern medicine and science, like people cross over and come back. Interestingly, they, they seem to always have tales to tell about what's waiting on the other side, which we should pay attention to. But back then, no. Nobody saw the resurrection coming. Not even Jesus' closest friends and followers. No matter which gospel you read, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, they all said the same thing when they got to the empty tomb. They didn't say, you get to the tomb and think, oh, we told you so. We knew it was going to happen. Let's start the party. We were counting down. Now this is it. No, it was not how it went down. Every time they got into the tomb, they found it empty. Their reaction was the same. They said, who took him? Who has taken him? Because they didn't go to the tomb expecting Easter. They went to the tomb to prepare their friend's body for a funeral, for a proper burial, which was the least they could do for not showing up at the crucifixion. That's all they wanted was to give Jesus a proper burial. And now, adding insult to injury, somebody has taken his body. How dare they? This is the, this is the reaction on the part of the disciples in all four Gospels. I'll read one account for you from the Gospel of John. This is uh, Jesus' best friend, John, the one who took care of Jesus' mama, Mary, after the crucifixion and after Jesus left this earth. John chapter, 10, uh, chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. You can open your Bibles if you want or just read along with me on the screen. John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the tomb. She ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one whom Jesus loved. That's John, by the way. Uh, he struggles with humility, this one, uh, because he's always the one whom Jesus loved. Like, there's the disciples, and there's the one whom Jesus loved. Like, that's John. If you ever read that and wonder who that is, that's, he's talking about himself, okay? 
And he, and he said to them, uh, actually, she said to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. And then Peter and the other disciples set out and went toward the tomb. The two were running together. But the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent down and looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came, following him, following John, and went into the tomb. He saw the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth that had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple who reached the tomb first, that's John, also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples returned to their homes. All right, I just want to point something out to you. It may already be clear to you. These disciples of Jesus, his chosen ones, not that bright. <laughs> Never do they appear in any of the Gospels as if they know anything or can do anything right. I mean, just, just read the story. Read the last five verses of this story. We'll just leave it up on the screen here. And, you know, uh, check out how many times on this day that is the biggest day of their lives, and if it's true, if the resurrection is legitimate, it's the biggest day in human history, most important day ever, and all John can find the time and energy to write about is the fact that he's faster than Peter. That's all he writes about. <laughs> God has risen from the grave, and all John talks about three different times is I beat him to the tomb, I beat him to the tomb, I beat him to the tomb. It's just ridiculous. It's just like, I imagine Peter like, how much can you bench? You know, like this like masculinity Olympics that broke out or something. But thank God Mary Magdalene was there, you know, to be the first preacher. The first preacher was, was a woman. They were the women that said, this is what's really happening. Jesus told us this would happen. This is what's happened. And because, thank God they were there because these men are just, they're just being ridiculous. Like, who are these guys? Like, I was faster than Peter three times, you know, and it's just crazy. But the fact that these disciples were so young, they were teenagers, all of them except Peter, the fact they were so young and so incorrigible and, and uh, impetuous and uh, so off the mark sometimes, I think lends uh, more credence to the story because this is where things start to get a little bit weird. Because even if you are a skeptic of skeptics, even if you do not believe the stuff Christians believe, and you kind of get sick in your stomach when Christians start talking, guys like me start talking about, he's risen from the dead, and, and you better believe, and all this stuff, and, and you just, you don't buy it. Like, even if that's where you're at, again, you're, I'm glad you're here. I just think it's incumbent upon you and all of us, really, to say, if the resurrection didn't happen that day, then what did? The resurrection didn't happened that day than what did. Because listen, something happened that day because these guys, Jesus' chosen ones, were cowards and idiots. Clearly not, you know, the leaders of the, the world that they, you know, became later. Like, clearly they didn't have it in them. Like, they, they were cowering in fear. They thought they would be next. They thought they had crosses with their names on them that were waiting for them when the Romans got a hold of them. So they were hiding behind closed doors some of them, even after seeing the risen Jesus, hid behind closed doors. Cowards, not that bright. They were nobodies, fishermen and, and construction workers, day laborers. Jesus himself was a nobody in the eyes of the world. In the scope of the Roman Empire, Jesus was nothing. 
Dead prophets were a dime a dozen in that day. There was always upstart movements that had new ideas, that wanted to overturn this government or that or whatever, and then they'd kill the leader and that would be it, and the, the movement would fizzle out. There's dozens of them on record. But something was different about this, and something happened that day, whether or not you believe it was the resurrection, something happened to trigger this movement that became the largest, most powerful, most global, most diverse, most influential social force the world has ever seen. And so if you don't believe in the resurrection, what do you believe happened? Now listen, I know Christianity, historically speaking, has had its moments. <laughs> We've had some days where we could, couldn't be further from the grace of the cross. We, you know, the crusade's not our finest hour. Inquisitions, eh, I wish that didn't happen. You know, like, there's all this stuff. You probably had that college professor like I did who told you that, that Christianity, nothing in the world has caused more bloodshed and violence and devastation and oppression than Christianity. And you've probably maybe even said stuff like that. Eh, it's not necessarily true. Like, if you really look at the scope of history, like, the common denominator of human oppression and devastation and bloodshed isn't religion or Christianity in particular. It's it's human beings, right? It's us. Like, with or without God, we can do this bad stuff. Sometimes we bring God along for the ride. Sometimes we use God, but it's just humans being humans. But I'll cede that point to you. Christians have not always been very Christ-like. However, you must also cede a point to me. If you're of a deep skeptical mindset, you must also cede the point and, uh, you know, you must also kind of uh, make no mistake that there's no organization, never has there been another movement or social force in the history of the world that has started half as many schools and universities and hospitals and shelters. There's no other social force in the history of the world that has fought half as hard for the equal education of young girls and women, even today, even in places where such things are frowned upon at best or illegal at worst. No other social movement or force in the world has ever fought half half as hard for the rights of people on the underbelly of society or been led by so many women and been led by so many people of color or insisted that all people are created equally, given, endowed with human rights by their creator equally regardless of their race, religion, creed, ethnicity, language, regardless of anything, everyone is equal, men, women, and children in the eyes of God. No other force in History of the world has ever brought more people together across national divides and social divides, ethnic divides, cultural dividing lines, or fed as many hungry, housed as many orphans, cared for as many sick people, visited as many prisoners as the movement that started that first Easter in that empty tomb as those two idiots and Mary Magdalene scratched their heads. So if it wasn't the resurrection, then what was it? This question changed my life because in early adulthood, I learned to doubt my, my uh, preconceived ideas about religion. I learned to doubt the Bible Belt stuff I grew up with. What I didn't learn in that phase of my life was how to doubt my doubts. So the stuff that I replaced religion with just became my new gospel. And I accepted it as a fundamentalist accepts religion. But I didn't know how to question that stuff until later in life when I started asking myself these questions 
If it wasn't the resurrection, the bodily, physical resurrection of Jesus that launched that movement that I just described to you, then what was it? I knew I had to explain what had happened because this is what we know. Y'all just keep track of this in your heads. This is what we know. First, we know beyond doubt, we know Jesus of Nazareth existed. In history, it wasn't made up. No serious secular scholar can deny the existence of Jesus of Nazareth. We know that he had a following and a message. We know that he ticked off the wrong people, the Romans and the religious authorities in his, in his region. We know that he died on a cross. We know that after he died on a cross, Christianity blew up from a handful of cowards and prostitutes to around a million followers in just one generation's time without benefit of the internet or transportation or anything like that to over one million people in one generation's time and to over three billion people today. And here's the really crazy part. We would know all those things I just said even without the Bible. I don't need Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to tell me all the stuff I just told you about the existence of Jesus and his movement and his death and what happened after his death. That's in the history books, outside the Bible. We have plenty of evidence outside the Bible, early evidence, first century evidence to point to these things being true. And so it's not biased confirmation. I'm not saying, well, the Bible is true because the Bible says the Bible is true. That's not it at all. I'm saying take the Bible away and we would still know these things. And so if you don't trust the Bible, you still have to grapple with these historical facts. So what was it that happened? There's a few things that you could point to and say, well, maybe it was this, maybe it was that. And believe me, people hate Christianity enough to, they've tried to poke holes in the resurrection story for years. And I've heard it all. You know, there was this theory in the 70s that, uh, that the disciples, you know, Jesus appeared to over 500 different people who all were eyewitnesses to the resurrection. And there was this theory in the 70s that, well, they all were hallucinating. It was one big hallucination. I guess everybody was hallucinating in the 70s. You know, I wasn't around, but, but I guess it was just like the generation of hallucination. And so maybe they all saw what we see, you know, like, and, and yet they all saw the same hallucination and that just, you know, that just doesn't stand up, doesn't really pass the smell test that 500 plus people would share the very same hallucination in different places in different times unrelated to each other. You know what I'm saying? And so then there were other theories, you know, uh, maybe Jesus never died. There was a swoon theory that maybe he didn't really die on the cross. He really survived crucifixion. That doesn't seem likely either given what we know about how Romans were crucifying people in the first century. And then there was this idea that, that it was a hoax. This may be the most uh, compelling idea because, you know, religious people can get carried away sometimes, right? So it's not unthinkable, I suppose, that these religious followers of Jesus just got caught up in the moment. They got caught up in their fervor, and they kind of made it up. And this next part I'm going to tell you, I wasn't sure I wanted to say today in front of, you know, 1,500 people throughout the day, and, and I, I, wasn't sure I, wanted to, I wasn't sure I wanted to share this part because it's slightly embarrassing. But in my mid-20s, I wrote a conspiracy theory play. This is true. It's called The Greatest Lie Ever Told. And I hated Christianity so much. I, and I wanted to be rich so bad back then. Like, I, I thought this was my big idea. This was my big idea. This was, I wrote this play that Peter and James, the brother of Jesus, and the night after Jesus' death, they broke into the tomb themselves. And they stole the body. And then they went and dumped it in the Sea of Galilee. And they told everybody that Jesus had risen from the grave. Look, the tomb is empty. And they got rich and famous and powerful because of the greatest lie ever told. 
You guys, I was so excited about this play. I thought this was my ticket to fame and stardom. And I passed it around to everybody that I knew. Everybody that had any connections whatsoever to like local theater and, and you know, uh, screenwriters. And, and you know, I, I had high hopes. I had imagined Tom Hardy as Peter. And Jake Gyllenhaal as John. And I wanted Selma Hayek to be Mary Magdalene. Because I guess I have a type. I passed that script around and mostly to non-Christians, expecting them to go head over heels, expecting them to tell me, man, this is the next Da Vinci Code, you're the next Dan Brown. And that's not what they said at all. <laughs> that's what I wanted them to say. But they said different variations of the same thing. You know, they just started picking it apart a little bit and they were like, wait, wait. So this guy, Peter, <laughs> Peter, the one who broke into the tomb, this is the same Peter who the night before when that middle school girl said, aren't you his friend? When Jesus was being interrogated, Peter was like, no, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. No, I don't know him. Then he ran out crying like a child. This is what the gospel record tells us, you know? And they were like, that, that's the guy who suddenly has the courage to break into a tomb in the middle of the night, <laughs> steal a body, dump the body, it doesn't sound likely. And I was like, you just got to work with me here. You just got to suspend disbelief and get through that part, and you'll see where the story's going. They were like, what about this other guy, this James guy, and was he a disciple? And I was like, no, he wasn't a disciple. He was Jesus' half-brother. That's what makes the story so compelling. I was like, he wasn't a disciple. He, he hated his older brother. He was embarrassed of his older brother. He wanted to shut his older brother up when Jesus was teaching he, he tried to go and interrupt him and, and try to, to take him away and shut him up so he would stop embarrassing the family. And they were like, wait a minute, so that, that guy wants to make Jesus famous. Why? Like, why, why would he want his older brother to be famous? Uh, and I was like, because, because afterward he, he, you know, he was convinced. Afterward he came around. Afterward, and they were like, after, after what? And I was like, after the resurrection. I was like, oh, no. Like, ooh. <laughs> That's my whole story. That's my whole script. You know, there's other questions that could be asked about that kind of thinking, like couldn't they have saved themselves the trouble of being, you know, thrown from the tops of buildings like the temple, like James was, and then stoned to death in the street like a dog? Couldn't they have saved themselves the trouble of being crucified upside down and, you know, the others being fed to hungry lions and all this stuff? If it was based on a lie, we know historically speaking, men don't tend to die for lies, at least not stuff they know to be false. Men die for false truths all the time for sure, but they believe it's true. So what was happening here, you know, if not the resurrection, what was going on? What I want to say to you today is that there's plenty of stuff you can believe in and still call yourself a Christian. Christianity should be, as it has always been, the most diverse movement the world's ever seen. So Christianity should not be populated by only, you know, conservative, like, Republican, white Americans, like that's not the whole of the Christian experience. Like you, you can believe a bunch of different stuff. You can vote with any political party and be a Christian. You can support whatever candidate you want and be a Christian. In fact, I, I think that more Christians should probably be registered independents and stop aligning ourselves with any platform other than the platform of Jesus. Like you can, you can relate to any political party or candidate. You can believe in, in any side of most of our like social issues that tear us apart and you can still make a case for your Christianity. You can believe in outright lies like the city of Dallas is in any way better than the city of Houston. They, <laughs> God will still love you. In spite of your obvious delusion, God will still love you. There's a lot of stuff you can believe you can be 
You know, you can believe in abstinence of, of uh, alcohol. You can, you can drink a beer tonight at St. Arnold's at 5 and 7 o'clock. And you can still be a Christian either way. You can be an Aggie or a Longhorn. You can be a dog person. You can even, get this, get this. You can even be a cat person and be a Christian. That, if you hear nothing else today, friends, I'm just kidding. Um, that, was, that was the hardest line of that sermon to say, though. I will say that. There's really only one major belief I could think of that is totally incompatible with Christianity. And that is the belief that that day, 2,000 years ago, the tomb wasn't really empty. And Jesus wasn't physically raised from the dead. As the Apostle Paul put it, who, by the way, hated Christians, hated Christianity, made a living persecuting Christians. Later, after his own experience with Jesus, he said, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. Listen, if Jesus was just some guy with a message, if Jesus was just some guy, some upstart who died, and his biggest fans loved him so much they just didn't want to let him go. They couldn't imagine life without him. And so they kept him alive in their hearts. You know what I mean? Like, they just, he's with us. I can feel him with us today. He's in this room right now. Like, if they just, in a metaphorical sense, symbolic sense, kept him alive symbolically, then I can find no way to distinguish Jesus from like Elvis. You know what I mean? Like Jesus is basically Elvis without the jumpsuit or whatever it was that Elvis wore. And we're basically the crazy people that try to find Elvis everywhere. Like that's, that's what the church is today is just some, some weird cult that, that basically, you know, took advantage of the circumstances of the day and against all the odds got lucky and, and, and exploded. And, and what I found over time is as much as during my darkest hour, as much as I wanted to believe the church was just some weird cult and Jesus was just some, you know, first century Elvis-like figure, it took a larger leap of faith to believe that. It took more uh, uh, stretch of logic, a greater stretch of my logic to believe that than it did to believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he is. The son of God among us. He embodies everything you would expect the God of creation to be. If God is real, then he is the highest moral good. If God is real, then indeed he is love. And if love is real, then it looks like an innocent man on a cross laying down his life for those who don't deserve it, forgiving those who put him there. In 1998, when he was just 19 years old, a young man named Justin was driving his new car through a subdivision of suburban Florida a little too fast, and he slammed into a minivan, killing a, a woman and her daughter. The mother's name was Cindy, and the daughter's name was Chelsea. He watched as they were engulfed in flames. He was uninjured and conscious, and he looked into their eyes as they died. Justin spent the next two years on trial fighting charges of vehicular manslaughter, and uh, he, he came out on top in, those, in the, the court cases. And, and the husband and father, whose wife and daughter were killed, his name is Bruce. And Bruce was there through the whole trial. And when the trial was over, he said the acquittal felt like adding insult to injury. He just couldn't believe it. And so then he pursued, you know, civil charges. And, and those were defeated as well. And after all of that was over, Bruce said, I just had to meet this young punk. I said, he said, I, I had to meet him one-on-one. -on -one. I had to give this punk a piece of my mind. That was a quote from Bruce. And so they set up a meeting, 
And when Justin walked into the room, he collapsed in front of Bruce in tears. He sobbed and he said he was sorry. Again and again, he said he was sorry. And Bruce said, I forgive you. He said, God forgives you. And Justin said, the only two people that I need forgiveness from the most aren't here to give it to me. And I'm the reason why. After that day, Bruce basically virtually adopted Justin as a son. And they spent years together touring the country, talking in high schools about the importance of safety and driving. And then they ended up on the Oprah show together because their story was so dramatic. And then they, they ended up on the Hallmark Channel in a Hallmark movie that was made about their, their lives. Two years ago this month, Justin was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer in his 30s. It's bizarre. And uh, as people are prone to do, he began asking questions about eternity. Now, Justin is one of the few people I've ever met in my life that's more stubborn in his skepticism than I am. He has uh, uh, degrees in astronomy, cosmology, and, and uh, he had a lot of questions about, about uh, creation, creationism, evolution, things like that. But his biggest question was, if God happens to be real, what would any God want to have to do with me? after what I've done. Um, one, uh, on January, Saturday morning, the uh, Houston Chronicle published a story on their front page about, about our community, the story of Houston. And Justin happened to see that. His mother-in-law sent it to him. And he came and visited the story of Houston on a Sunday in February. And loved the service and everything, and, and came back the next morning for our Monday morning men Bible study, and we started tackling some of his questions, surrounding him with community. And then for the weeks that followed, I went with Justin to his uh, cancer treatments at MD Anderson. While he was getting chemo, we would just sit and talk. We'd go to, you know, Starbucks or Common Bond after that and, and just work through some of the questions I ask and some of the questions he asks and, and really try to tackle some of these deep and, and dark questions. And, and Justin really came to some conclusions through that season that even as he was fighting this cancer, he had the ability to work through these things. And he said, I have decided that it's more likely than not that God is real. And it's more likely than not that Jesus existed. And it's more likely than not that Jesus embodies everything that a real God would be. And so on April 23rd, a week after Easter Sunday last year, Justin sat in a tank of freezing cold water <laughs> right here, and I baptized him. His head was bald from the chemo treatments, and when I brought him up out of the water, he just broke like this, and he cried. He said it was one of the three most powerful days of his life, including the day he met his wife and the day that his daughter was born. But on June 26th of last year, I stood in a room at Houston Hospice and I held Justin's hand as he breathed his last. I prayed with him just before he passed away. We hosted a funeral for Justin at, here at the story a few days after that. We had a special surprise guest show up, Bruce. Though he was on vacation in Hawaii, when he heard Justin died, he interrupted his vacation and he came to Houston to be a part of Justin's funeral. He walked in those doors and he came to me and said, are you the pastor? And I said, yes. And he said, I'd like to say a few words at this funeral. And I said, oh my gosh, what's he gonna say? <laughs> because it's really hard to wrestle a pulpit out of a pastor's hands, right? Because I didn't, I didn't know this guy. But something told me to let him speak. 
and he spoke. At the funeral of the young man who took his wife and daughter away from him. And he said, Justin, I love you. And God loves you more, and I thank God that you knew that before you died. And I know, I know that Cindy and Chelsea are waiting for you to let you know you've been forgiven, to let you know that you were free and you were loved. Now, you can hear a story like that, and if you happen to be in a really dark place, you might say to yourself, well, that's a religious placebo effect. Or that's, that's nice that you believe that. Man, it takes a pretty dark heart to say that. When I hear a story, when I live that story, I couldn't help but think this is the power of the resurrection of Jesus. This is what it means that the tomb was empty. That we have nothing to fear in this life because this life is not all there is. And not even death should bring us to our knees because there's so much more waiting for us on the other side. And you can tell me now that that's wishful thinking, that, that religious people are just afraid of the dark because you don't want to feel alone in the universe. But I would submit to you that cynical people might be afraid of the light. And if you feel moved or compelled in any way to believe that you've been created and you're not just a clump of cells, but your life has purpose and God might have made you for a reason to shine a light in dark places and to be someone, someone he created you to be. And I encourage you to shed the cynicism even for a second and receive the promise of the resurrection that you are a daughter or a son the most high God who loves you no matter what you've done. And you are his in this life. And you are his forever. Because Christ has risen, right? He is risen indeed. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the promises of the empty tomb. Help us who are struggling, especially with cynicism and skepticism, to open our hearts to see that there's so much more going on here than just religion and brainwashing and all the stuff we've called Christianity in the past. This is relationship. And this is real life. And this is love. Thank you for the resurrection, for what it means to us. In Jesus' name, amen.